This is Audio Gyan, and I am your host Kedar Nimkar. Welcome to a deep dive into the minds of luminaries from the Indian creative world. I'm not sure where to start today's episode uh, since it's about aesthetics. This concept can be seen in mathematics, arts, poetry, literature, music, sculpture, poet, photography, cooking. In fact. anything that you can see smell taste touch or hear uh, so let's let's leave it to our today's guest shugato baduri he is a professor at jawaharlal nehru university in new delhi india a scholar in the field of aesthetics which is a philosophical study of beauty and taste as a professor at jnu shugato is known for his engaging and thought provoking lectures and has made significant impact on education of students in arts and humanities through his teachings research and engagement he is making important contribution to the field of aesthetics and to the study of arts and humanities more broadly we'll try and understand some basics and how to go about understanding aesthetics also so yeah welcome shugato uh, thanks yeah. thanks for yeah. giving your time it's a real real honor to have you on the show it's my pleasure cool so as i said like uh, i was i don't know where to start also or how to think about aesthetics uh, and that's why we can we can roll the ball uh, by just you telling us like a brief definition if there is any of of what is what are aesthetics or what is aesthetics and how do you define them we will start off from there and see where it goes right uh, so uh, as you said right at the beginning that aesthetics is more of a study of beauty and taste um, and in a way beauty itself becomes a problematic concept because uh, not only what may seem beautiful to me may not seem beautiful to you etc uh, etc et but furthermore even aesthetic appeal may emerge from what is not beautiful even disgust or hatred these are also aesthetic impressions these are also aesthetic emotions so uh, beauty is itself a rather fluid concept Uh, and uh, uh, taste again is a relatively limited concept in the sense we metaphorically enhance the concept of taste to all kinds of senses we can talk about a taste of hearing a taste of seeing but taste technically speaking is restricted to one of our senses one of the five senses and which is of course a sense of taste i mean we taste with our tongue so to say uh, so both beauty and taste to the two words with which you uh, introduce the term aesthetics are kind of problematic terms and which leads me to answer your direct question so obviously aesthetics itself is a problematic terrain a difficult domain to define hmm. uh, in simple terms but primarily speaking uh, of course the word aesthetics derives itself from the greek word aesthesis and all the derivatives of this particular idea of the uh, aest i mean all derivatives of the word aest which means feelings which means sensations which means sensations that arise in us so aesthetics in a way is a study of sensations that arise in us the sensations could incidentally be pleasurable the sensations could be painful as well so a broad study a broad field and which incidentally is a part of philosophy but it need not be so because there is an 
everyday aesthetics also, because even one who's not initiated into philosophy, he or she also continuously experiences things, also senses things. So aesthetics is a, uh, to define it as loosely as one can, is a study of uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a study, I mean, I, I'll problematize the word study also in a minute, uh, is uh, generally a study of sensations and feelings that continuously get generated in us by objects. And the sensation more often than not would be of the pleasurable sort, would be a sensation that we would enjoy somehow. Because even tearjerker movies or something uh, that may be hurtful or that may be disgusting or that may be painful, even that can cause intense uh, enjoyment, intense, let's say, feeling and emotional investment on our part. And therefore, that can also qualify uh, as a subject of aesthetics. A second question that also gets raised within this domain of aesthetics is that uh, wherein does the uh, does the spirit of this aesthetics lie? Does it lie in the object that is the particular object that we are viewing, the particular object that we are hearing or tasting since taste was already picked up as one of the senses or the object that we are touching because there can be an aesthetics of touch also. Why only of visuality? Why only of hearing? So is it that the object itself is an aesthetic object? The object itself has some qualities in it which makes it uh, qualified as an, as an object of aesthetics. Or is it that the aesthetic feeling emerges from within the human subject, the beholder, the listener, the taster? Because again, as I said, the same object may appear to be tasty to someone and may not appear to be tasty to another. So is it that the person, the subject is the one who yields the aesthetic judgment? So that is also a very important question. And even for the same person, depending on the context, so a particular film, at a certain point of time, when you were in a frame of mind, you disliked that film. You, you absolutely hated the film. But at some other point of time, when you were in a different emotional state, you may enjoy that very film. So let's say whether the object itself yields aesthetic response or is it the subject and the particular situation that the subject is in, the individual is in, does that lead to the aesthetic judgment? This is also a very important question. So to be put together, therefore, uh, if you were to ask me to define aesthetics, I must say that, well, uh, it is very difficult to define <laughs> because <laughs> there are so many problems herein. And uh, uh, generally speaking, it is indeed a study of or an exploration of into the principle of uh, sensations and feelings that get generated in a human being caused by some object that that person encounters through one of the senses. So that entire field would be covered within aesthetics. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I mean, there are many, many areas where we could segue into, but if I have to like, is there a parallel word in Hindi? Because what I was getting to is kind of rasa is the closest word or, uh, no. or do we have something more? Yes. No, rasa would be the derivative, the affect. We'll get to talk about it probably in the course of our discussion. So hmm. rasa is what gets generated in me as I observe a particular object, 
that uh, that evokes that rasa in me so rasa and as rasa literally means rasa is juice right mm-hmm. so uh, rasa is obviously technically and ganne ka ras and all the ras ras is juice so rasa is that emotional outburst that happens in me but the field of study that studies rasa as also studies other things so since we have uh, kind of digressed into rasa just one uh, one uh, point that i must make so the object in the in the classical indian aesthetic uh, scenario the object of aesthetic contemplation has what is called bhav or bhav so mm-hmm. let's say there is a particular film that i'm watching now rasa is not there in the film the film elicits bhavas and the bhava elicits within me the observer the watcher a rasa so rasa is that flow that flow of emotion that juicy flow of emotion that happens in me the effect that happens in me and the object which causes that particular flow of rasa however has within it bhava it communicates different bhavas which generate and translate into rasas within me uh, mm-hmm. and since we have digressed into rasa I mean, it would be what i stated a, a few minutes back it would be probably clearest if we consider the whole uh, paradigm of rasa because clearly uh, vibhatsa is also a rasa bhayanaka mm-hmm. is also a rasa so disgust fear anger not only beauty not only the sense of beauty not only love not only something that is peaceful not only something that leads to some kind of a general stasis of satisfaction but even the disgusting even the sad even the mournful even the uh, anger causing these are also rasas so in fact mm. uh, our segueing into rasa uh, in a way substantiates the point that we made earlier so aesthetics is not about only studying beauty but it is about studying a whole plethora of emotions some of which can be mm. uh, called negative emotions too that upon our encountering an object gets elicited in us but to mm. go back to your original question so is there a word in the indic system for aesthetics yes there are a couple of words so saundarya shastra is a word uh, but saundarya shastra again clearly is the study of beauty so the very mm. problematization that i did at the beginning so saundarya shastra in a way is limited but it's a word that we do use and nandan tattva nandan is A, a term that is difficult to explain difficult to probably translate but nandan means something that uh, that gains your approval something that uh, you feel moved by a nandan tattva is the theory of what is nandanik or what is nandan drishti nandan what what really becomes uh, nandan nandanifying so to say so <laughs> nandan tattva and saundarya shastra are indeed two words that are used very regularly within the indic system as synonyms of aesthetics mm-hmm. and has like because now we very casually use this word aesthetics it's generally has a very beauty angle connotation uh, has it sort of do do we have any milestones why this happened because i remember uh, i had gone to one vipassana 10 day course and in that uh, uh, sn goenka spoke about dharma uh, and today the context is very different but in his time or or maybe many centuries before dharm was like literally if you translate is a property aag ka dharm hai jalana in that context now in the flow of time things change so has aesthetic word sort of changed i know it's a very big subject but any big milestones or any big points where it changed 
Uh, yeah, uh, there, are, there are two points to be noted. Uh, first of all, evidently, while originally etymologically and otherwise, aesthesis would have covered a study of all emotions and all affects that may be generated in us. But evidently, as art itself got institutionalized, as art itself became uh, fetishized also perhaps, as the official mode through which some kind of an aesthetic communication has to take place and art being always connected to this notion of beauty. And even if it's a sad looking picture, we would say, oh, it's so beautiful. So this kind of takeover by the whole world of a myriad, myriad sensualities and a myriad possibilities of sensibility and sensations, the takeover of the plural world by an institution namely art, through whose uh, gatekeeping alone we can talk about aesthetic processes may have really been one of the milestones, this institutionalization of restricting the whole wide range of aesthetic pleasures and aesthetic emotions unto only what would be beautiful of sorts. But there is a second milestone which we also have to keep in mind, which in a way problematizes this investment into beauty alone. And therefore, for quite a few hundred years, uh, and uh, this, I mean, because I was putting the card before the horse, uh, actually, as early as 1756, uh, someone called Edmund Burke, he was a British philosopher, uh, he made a distinction between, and that is the title of his work itself, the beautiful and the sublime. And later, the German philosopher Kant in, in 1790, he in his book, Critique of Judgment, would further build on it. So aesthesis right from the mid-18th century or aesthetics as a subject of study right from the mid-18th century has not concerned itself with only the beautiful. So the beautiful, the investment into the beautiful alone, and we will talk about beauty in a minute, the investment into the beautiful alone, that probably would be a development which happened in between, so to say, maybe from the time uh, art would have emerged as an institution, which could be maybe 4th century BC or so with the emergence of the great epics, with the emergence of certain kind of sculptures uh, in the Greco-Roman context and globally forever, a certain kind of investment into certain institutions, certain monuments. Globally, world over, we find uh, almost around the same point of time, a certain kind of an investment into a culture of what would be officially, institutionally called beautiful. Two, pretty much around the mid to late 18th century, uh, I already named 1756 and 1790s thresholds, where already aesthetics gets once again diversified into including not just beauty within its scope, but also the sublime within its scope. And Edmund Burke would have been the first person to point out that the uh, object of aesthetics is not just the beautiful, but also the sublime. And what is the sublime? In fact, Kant defines it further and more, more beautifully, <laughs> to, for lack of a better word. So beauty is when we are in awe of an object, we appreciate that object because of its well-formedness, because of its proportions, because of following the golden mean, or because of whatever it is regular. It is very well-patterned. And we appreciate, well, this is beautiful. But sublime is also an aesthetic emotion is also an emotion that certain objects can generate in us, but where we are in awe of an object, not because it is well-formed, but because it is so awesome and so awesomely disproportionate, so awesomely irregular, 
And uh, examples that are often given, and which will lead me to another point, but I will lead myself into that point, is that suppose you're walking in a field and there is suddenly this, this burst of a, of, a, of, of a lightning against the black sky. Now, it is not beautiful. It is terrifying. But you will probably just, I mean, hypnotically almost get hypnotized and stop and say, wow. So you get overwhelmed by that ominous strike of lightning across the black sky. But it is not beautiful in any sense of the term. So what is it? It is sublime. So amongst aesthetic judgments, there can be clearly two judgments. One is that of the beautiful. Beauty is indeed one of the objects of aesthetics. But we do not stop in aesthetics with the beautiful alone. We also, at least from Burke and Kant onwards, we pretty much include even those things which are not beautiful, but which still elicit an aesthetic bewilderment in us. And that is of the order of the sublime, where it's sheer terrifying awesomeness completely takes us over, completely overwhelms us, completely sways us off our feet. And that has also been for the last two and a half centuries, pretty much a part of the aesthetic palette. A next signpost could as well as begin probably by the end of the 19th century or so, when with the technological takeover, because earlier I was talking about a certain kind of a cultural capital, a certain kind of a gatekeeping, a certain kind of an institutional investment into art. So certain things alone can qualify as art because the official machineries declared that this is art. And therefore, mm. that gets appreciated as art. But from the end of the 19th century, and particularly towards the beginning of the 20th century, this itself started getting challenged. Because with the coming of mechanical reproduction, and with the coming of mass production of art objects, art itself gets democratized. And mm. what could have been earlier the privy of a few, and could have been earlier the result of a certain kind of a gatekeeping, and a certain kind of a control by institutions that administer art, art could now be anybody's art in any case always was anybody's but anybody's art would have been considered to be crude so popular artistic expressions folk artistic expressions uh, expressions artistic expressions of let's say lesser communities uh, the tribal communities or whichever community would have been thought of as being uh, not civilized enough they would have been kept outside of the purview of aesthetics outside of the purview of art but with the emergence of technological reproduction and with the emergence of democratization of art also comes an entry of mass forms of art of popular forms of art of artistic forms that belong to those sections of the population that were earlier get gate kept out of the institutional edifice of art, mm -hmm. they also come into the general domain of art. And this obviously starts getting questioned through pop art, through, I mean, the Dadais themselves start questioning it, through found objects, through machinic assemblages. Marcel Duchamp would absolutely radicalize it by putting an, uh, a urinal, as you know. So his argument yep. being that art need not be an object of beauty at all. A urinal, and very ironically so, a urinal pot can also qualify as art if you put it inside an art gallery and say that this is art, but that was an ironic pointing out by Marcel Duchamp that there is nothing intrinsically art seen an object. It's only the institutional. So he was being ironic and he was being critical of it. Mm. But to get back to the point, so then this, this would be the next signpost where no more would only what would be authoritatively considered beautiful. 
what would be officially and normatively considered beautiful not only that but several other things which earlier would be considered crude ugly not really up to the taste standards and therefore not really beautiful but those objects also start getting legitimacy and start pretty much entering into the fold of aesthetics so at the point that we are standing it is not only what is officially beautiful that mm. becomes the object of aesthetics that could have very much been the case for around 2000 years or so from the 3rd 4th century bc to the middling middle of the 18th century but it wasn't so before that and it definitely hasn't been so for the last 250 years and more emphatically not so in the last uh, 70 80 almost 100 years since the time we have started um, started admitting what is called trash aesthetics what is called pulp fiction what is called popular culture within the domain of aesthetics and admitting democratically those cultural forms that would have been considered non beautiful would have been considered tasteless would have been considered ugly by official gatekeepers of one kind of authoritative culture of beauty mm-hmm. it's it's so fascinating so is it fair to say that if the sublime or the lightning example that you gave or if you take picasso's later work uh, can it be if if picasso was probably 1000 years before would that sublime be changed to a normal one as in like the beauty part of it would it have like transpired or or moved from that because it it became a norm right so picasso and the surrealists and the dadaists and the cubists they would be all examples of precisely uh, bringing bringing to the fore the sublime instead of the beautiful so mona lisa is beautiful but a portrait of doramar is not beautiful because how can the eye is here eye is on your forehead ear is behind your back the nose is somewhere else it is not beautiful at all it is formless it is not proportionate it is not beautiful and yet it is indeed artistic it is indeed an object of aesthetics it indeed leads to an aesthetic emotion you and that emotion is not of beauty because it is not beautiful but rather what it does lead to is pretty much of the order of the sublime where the sheer formlessness the sheer non beautifulness communicates to you a certain kind of emotion that mere beauty would not have been able to communicate it communicates to a certain kind of an aesthetic sensation which is indeed of the order of the sublime but which would not have been communicated through mere merely what would be well formed and proportionate and beautiful so uh, picasso is a good example of this but then again uh, part of the argument that i was presenting earlier uh, does not i mean or does hold true in the case of picasso also so maybe if you or i do a certain doodling which is as ugly or as formless as picasso's we will not have that kind of cultural currency because uh, picasso's signature would append value to that work of mm. art aesthetic value to work of art so if the same thing i mean you just hide the fact that it's a picasso and show an equally formless doodle one would say oh kisi bachche ne draw kiya hoga pata nahi kya hai it would not so the institutional legitimation of a particular investment of a certain art industry that definitely appends to what was otherwise definitely sublime but in short not all non beautiful forms can gain that aesthetic currency it probably also has to have some kind of an institutional stamp on it which makes it doubly ironic but that was the irony that marcel duchamp was also pointing out 
Correct, correct. Yeah. Because I was reading this book called What is Art? And I think 100 other important questions. Ernest Bill Green, I think. Uh, and it's a small book which I found somewhere. But uh, in that, uh, like among the 100 questions, one question was that who decides art is good? And he had this nice format, which I'm going to borrow for audio gans book, maybe is like a short answer and a long answer. And in short answer, he says, Glenn Laurie and long answer, he says, because he's the, the MoMA sort of chairman. And at that time, so I think institutionalizing is a big part of, of understanding. I don't know, maybe the trend or, or what is, what is good or what is bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, certainly, that that pretty much is the case. But as I also pointed out, that with increasing democratization and which technology has brought to the fore to a great extent, maybe that kind of rigorous gatekeeping, where the MoMA director alone will decide what is art, that need not be true anymore. So now on social media, any individual with his own handheld phone can shoot a thing and post it and receive 20 million views, which probably MoMA does not receive. And it may give gain a certain kind of aesthetic currency, which no more is limited to only certain gatekeepers of what is aesthetic and what is artsy and what is beautiful. So it's, it's maybe maybe that kind of uh, a strong industrial control over what would qualify as art is partly it has devolved in these days uh, of technology to a great extent, which has led to democratization of art. And which, uh, as I also uh, also said a little while back, which also exposes us to different kinds of art because different traditions. So in some tradition, maybe in some, some culture, uh, having a long neck may be perceived to be beautiful. There is this uh, tribe in Burma or wherever where they put these uh, rings on the neck. So again, in some culture, it would seem ugly. But the moment we get exposed through technology and through other means to different cultural universes, we realize that beauty is a very very relative concept and therefore no amount of a normative top-down gatekeeping can restrict what would be the rightful object of aesthetics because we have to be relative and we have to understand context to context, person to person, the sheer pluralities of what appeals in different ways through enjoyment to different people. And the same film, I mean, so that's how, let's say, uh, some of us may enjoy what may be called more artsy films. And some of us may think that that's trash. I mean, one may watch a particular film which may have won several awards and a significant section of the population may say, but that did not appeal to me at all. I did not really stickly moved at all. And vice versa, a particular pot boiler, which a certain section of the audience may love and lap up. Earlier, we could disqualify their aesthetic mm. experience in the name of our cultural capital, in the name of our gate, gate kept uh, cultural currency. We would say, no, no, they are bad taste, popular mass and bad people. We are the only, let's the say, elite, uh, yeah. we are the mm -hmm. monitors of taste, right? But that is not possible mm. anymore. And therefore, we also have to open our own windows to admit the fact that uh, what is aesthetic is very relative and very mm, mm, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree because I've seen that in a bunch of places happening in the digital world. I'm very close to the digital world. But academically, if you, if you can, academically, you mentioned, but who defines aesthetic? The earlier, uh, the first part of your, uh, when you started off that, the subject and the object uh, and are there any 
sort of categories to classify or framework to understand aesthetics like there are broad disciplines or is there any structure for anybody to understand at a very just just starting point yeah sure so uh, normally as it is presumed there are primarily uh, three ways in which aesthetics is approached one is to understand aesthetics itself as a concept i mean that is what is it that aesthetics does right something that we were discussing so far and we're in questions like beauty questions like taste questions like the sublime questions like affect will also come in at a theoretical level so at a more theoretical level one can deal with the conceptual toolkit as it were of aesthetics as a philosophical concept aesthetics as a topic of discussion as a general topic of discussion the second and third sub branches so to say of aesthetics precisely employ those two poles that we were talking about so the first is the generality of the conceptual categories of aesthetics but the second and the third involve the two poles that we were talking about that is the object and the subject so a second branch of aesthetics invests itself and tries to study the characteristics of the object of art or the object of aesthetic pleasure so what is it that the object contains so it can take the form of a formalist study where you study the form that is it that this poem is pleasing to me or is it that this particular painting is pleasing to me or this particular film is pleasing to me because the form the structure of this particular film and the plot the characterization the short composition so a formalistic kind of study of the object where you study a literary text or a painting or a film or a statue or for that matter any other object uh, with the object being your focus mm. of study the third branch is where on the contrary you move to the other pole which is the subject because as i argued a little while back also that the object may not have anything intrinsic in it to make it qualify as an object of aesthetics because the same object as i said could be let's say since we were talking about taste and rasa and taste is such an important metaphor so uh, the same food i mean let's say uh, something uh, that has been prepared with i'm just giving a stray example some dish which has been prepared with fish sauce some vietnamese for something and someone might just taste it or disgusting i don't like it at all i mean this is tasteless or very bad to taste and some other person may taste that very object with utter relish right so is it on the contrary and that is the third branch is it that aesthetics primarily involves the individual because the same individual may may perceive the same object and have very different aesthetic sensations emerge so the third branch of aesthetics involves what happens in the individual's mind in the individual psychological encounter with the object in the individual's own processing of uh, of let's say the sensations that emerge and how that leads to an aesthetic impression now these three have been classically the sub branches of aesthetics that is either philosophically dealing with the concepts of aesthetics or studying the object and trying to study it formally and in terms of its content and see what is there in this particular object that this makes i mean this becomes an aesthetic object and the third is studying the subject the viewer the beholder because beauty lies in the eyes of the beholder as is often yeah. often said so what does yeah. the beholder do what do i undergo these have been traditionally the three uh, sub branches but a fourth sub branch got introduced within uh, within the film of uh, within the field of aesthetics for let's from let's say a century or so back 
which is the most sociological, ideological, political, we can call it moralistic angle too. That is, I mean, you study a work of art by primarily looking at what is the use of this particular work? How does it get deployed towards social formation, towards social transformation? What is the politics that this particular artwork communicates? And what kind of ideological processes does it, uh, does it really participate in? So this political, ideological, sociological add-on to aesthetics, where study of aesthetics is no more restricted only to studying philosophical concepts or studying formally the object or studying psychologically the subject, the beholder, but rather sociologically studying how the object of art and therefore the aesthetic sensations that get generated, they are deployed socially, politically, ideologically, with a didactic purpose, perhaps. So that also enters into the field of aesthetics, uh, maybe about a uh, hundred years back uh, or so, by the beginning of the 20th century, very, very majorly. So these could, as well as, uh, I mean, these four things together might as well as form a conceptual framework uh, of aesthetics as practiced as an academic. Mm -hmm. Is this the moral framework or the, the fourth sub, the bucket was introduced because of the art for art sake kind of a wave or because when I was reading like there was like the didactive art long time ago and, and it has been sort of the mainstream thing because it has to communicate something, right? But then there was, I'm sure there was a phase of just art for art's sake and did it. So the fourth branch evolved because of over popularizing the art for art thing? No, it may be the other way around. Because as you also pointed out, this whole didactive art or the moral role of art or the political deployability of art, that probably predates the aesthetes, that probably predates the, the art for art's sake movement. Like not only for quite some time, like, uh, I mean, we need not drag ourselves back to Plato when he would have raised a very moralistic question about how art corrupts, uh, because uh, we can leave that out. But uh, even let's say from the uh, early 19th century, people like Shelley, for instance, the British romantic poet Shelley, he would talk about poets as legislators. So poetry automatically having a political purpose. Poet as legislator is a very famous phrase of Shelley. Or Tolstoy in the mid-19th century. Tolstoy would Tolstoy's entire aesthetic theory is premised on what is called extrinsic. So uh, uh, we didn't introduce these two terms earlier. So aesthetic theories are often classified into extrinsic theories or intrinsic theories. Extrinsic theories of aesthetics presume that primarily aesthetics has to have an exterior applicability. Mm. And uh, this uh, very richly derives itself from Tolstoy's general aesthetic theories that no art is good art unless it serves a moral purpose. So I deliberately took up these examples to show that how the extrinsic idea of aesthetics, that uh, aesthetic values must have a didactive, uh, moral, political applicability, this idea actually predates the art for art's sake in fact, the art for art segment, which would be the intrinsic, which would rely more on intrinsic aesthetic mm. theories, that is art objects or the art subject for that matter, because the aesthete is a subject, like the rasik. Uh, mm. And one, once again, one is just jumping. So, uh, and this jumping is very important because you must understand that not everyone is a rasik. Mm. I mean, rasa can get generated only in one who has the propensity of being a rasik. Because if you are be rasik, 
if you do not even have that ability in you to be moved, then I can show you the best film in the world. I can show you the best picture in the world. And yet it is a, a big deal. What's the point? So you have to have that rasikata in you, so mm. to say. You have to have within you that capacity to be moved, to have rasa generate, to, for rasa to be generated in you, you have to be a rasik yourself. But to go back to what I was talking about, so the aesthete, the idea of the aesthete, and therefore this intrinsification of aesthetic theories, that art need not be read, the value of art need not be seen, or the value of aesthetics need not be seen only in terms of its extrinsic employability, but Art for art's sake, its own intrinsic values, where the esthete himself or herself, by uh, through his or her own enjoyment of a work of art, can derive immense aesthetic value. This intrinsic turn, which indeed the art for art's sake movement and the esthete movement and the decadent movement uh, by the middling end of the 19th century, more towards the end of the 19th century, brings up. That would have been rather a reaction to the over-didacticization rather than it being the other mm. way around. But since this is like reaction, counter-reaction, so uh, if we draw a date line correctly, so your question is also spot on that maybe by the beginning of the 20th century with Marxism, feminism, post-colonialism, other kinds of woke-isms generally taking over the field of aesthetics and how all our arguments must necessarily be political, necessarily be sociological, that could be a reaction to the art for art sake. But the art for art movement itself was also a reaction to a certain kind of a didactic takeover of art for a century before that. So it's reaction, counter-reaction. Uh, and we have to be, again, as I said, uh, open to plurality. I mean, it's not to say that art doesn't have any political function, but it'd be equally stupid to say that art only has a political function. Because then what would differentiate, let's say, a pamphlet from a novel? Right. So uh, obviously art cannot have only an ideological function, but similarly, it would be silly to say that art has no political function. It art is art for art's sake alone. So maybe aesthetics has to bring together both the extrinsic and the extrinsic approaches. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in fact, uh, if you look at the Indian context also, uh, I did an interview with uh, Keshav Chaitanya Kunthe, uh, who's a, a musicologist and like the lineage of Ashokra Ranade. And he said that we also have something called as spiritual music where there's an exploration for some higher state of consciousness. And that that also falls in that art for art's sake kind of a bucket where you are in, in your own... No, I'm not very sure. About, I'm not very sure about that because here it's art for spirit, spirituality's yeah, sake. No, no. In, if if we have these three, four here buckets, then maybe if I have to subset, mm -hmm. put it under. That's why. But yeah, it could be separate also. Sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah. No, I I interrupted you because I, I thought that presuming that uh, if we think of art as leading me to spirituality or leading me to a heightened state. If we think that that is art for art's sake, then we may be mistaken because art for art's sake means art is for art's sake alone, neither for materiality's sake nor for spirituality's sake. Mm -hmm. Because even spirituality's sake is a sake. <laughs> it's also extrinsic to art. Mm. Because if art becomes a vehicle for me to kind of uh, dissolve into some spiritual domain, then that is also an extrinsic mm. function. But art for art's sake, or the intrinsicity of art is, intrinsic, intrinsicity of art is, where there is the art object. And again, we are uh, returning to the art object again and again, which also needs to be problematized, I will, uh, in a minute. So uh, uh, let's say uh, there is the art object and there am I. And there is a very intimate relationship between us. And it's a self-contained relationship. 
that is intrinsicity where art is for art's sake insofar as i the aesthete derive aesthetic pleasure from an object and this relationship doesn't have any extrinsic legitimation to seek it is not that this particular relationship of arts is legitimate because it connects to some politics neither does it need to be legitimized by saying well it connects to some spirituality or uh, makes me move closer to some kind of a spiritual revelation that also will be as extrinsic intrinsicity would be all about a self contained art for art second art not to be legitimized in terms of anything that is extrinsic to the art object uh, but to come back to what i was uh, talking about where i said i have to come back to this so we are continuously talking about art object art object alone but we must understand that the object of aesthetics or the for the matter the object of beauty also or for that matter the object of the entire plethora of aesthetic emotions might emerge from natural objects too not just art because art ultimately is a simulated uh, attempt to capture through an artificial means through an intentional means something that tries to be beautiful but then when you walk in nature you you don't need to see a landscape right mm-hmm. so the landscape painting is a is an object of art but when you have gone uh, to a hill station or by the beach i mean the actual scene also may lead to aesthetic emotion in you the actual sea might also be beautiful or otherwise the actual hills are also beautiful so the object of aesthetics is not art alone the object of aesthetics can be also objects actual material objects natural objects and not just art because art is a man made object where indeed human beings invest their time and energy into producing an object that would somehow uh, raise an emotion in you. but there are natural objects which are not man made which can also raise the same emotions so aesthetic studies and like the example that i earlier gave that uh, that lightning that is not a work of mm-hmm. art but it also leads to aesthetic uh, sensations in you so aesthetic sensations can be though we have been talking only about art uh, and again when we talk about art mostly we get limited to visual mm-hmm. art whereas we talked earlier about the whole notion of taste itself suggesting that we have so many senses why privilege the visual over or the auditory for that matter the audio visual over the other senses there is evidently an art of touch there is an art of smell there is an art of taste so uh, there are two uh, eclipses that are happening here first of all art itself the artificial world the artifice almost overtakes and eclipses the natural world the world of natural beauty or natural aesthetic sensations when we talk about aesthetics often and within that world of art maybe visual and audiovisual art eclipses the other senses that we are also equipped with so if we have to talk about aesthetics we have to include the whole range of objects that can lead to aesthetic emotions in us which could be natural which could be artificial within artificial they could be intended to be pleasing or they could be accidentally pleasing something uh, let's say an object i mean and you being a product designer you would be able to appreciate it uh, better so you did the products immediate function is what the product does and yet it may be more aesthetically pleasing to me than a, a work of art that was intended only as a work of art so in short we have to increase our uh, our entire our horizon and include all kinds of objects which need not only be art within the scope of aesthetics mm mm-hmm. yeah i think i'm going to listen to this over and over again to understand it's you're packing 
uh, it nicely. Maybe I want to just go now deeper into the moral aspect of it, the the fourth aspect, and generally understand that how does it. Maybe we'll start off with that. How does this fourth stream help in in the cultural context or social context or how do aesthetics play a role in shaping the society or shaping us as individuals constantly reacting to objects and and uh, like does it have the capacity to address yeah. social uh, yeah, and so cultural issues for that matter yes certainly it does but uh, that's not its only function as i said earlier but uh, to uh, to broaden the response a bit this whole connection the ethical political connection of aesthetics is age old because aesthesis the idea of aesthesis the greek word aesthesis that i began with that has always been coupled with this idea of ascesis a s k e s i s so aesthesis and ascesis always walk hand in hand and they have always walked hand in hand aesthesis means something that we've been talking about so far is that when you pleasure yourself with some emotions when you acquire some uh, some object and feel luxuriated by it even if that luxury like we can talk about sadomasochism or something so it could be a hurtful feeling and yet you can derive pleasure from it or a tear jerker movie we've talked about this that even uh, and as bharata says since we've been referring to bharata so uh, we've been referring to the rasa theory uh, he says karuna rasadapi jayate yat paramasukha even from karun ras even from sadness what gets born is param sukh so even sad, so let's not get there with a the pleasure so when i'm using the word pleasure i don't only mean ha ha hi hi i mean let's say even self flagellation and i deliberately gave the example of sadomasochism therefore so even inflicting injury might be very pleasurable to somebody so that's a side that's one side so aesthesis always involves this acquisition of uh, the outside world of the impressions of the outside world unto yourself and pleasurably luxuriate yourself that is one point. on the other hand hand in hand with that always runs the principle of ascesis and ascesis is the word from which the english word ascetic asceticism of course the k replaced by c the whole idea so ascesis yeah. means giving up self regulation disciplining control Aesthetics and ascetics have always run hand in hand. They have been the two principles around which the entire Greek philosophical spectrum, and there after the whole European, uh, let's say, philosophical tradition has woven itself. So ascetics and aesthetics have always been part of the same project. So aesthetics, if it is an unbridled acquisition of pleasure alone, so then where I go and aestheticize, enjoy, enjoy, that doesn't lead to anything. Aesthetics is always coupled with self-control, self-regulation, renunciation, asceticism, becoming an ascetic, and uh, doing an ascesis. More specifically, in the Greco-Roman context, took the form of exercises. Mm. So, doing bodily exercises, which Foucault has later uh, theorized as technologies of the self. So, how you regulate yourself to not to kind of give in too much to. Aesthetics alone. So aesthetics and ascesis, this whole idea of pleasurability and control, have always run hand in hand. So right from time immemorial, there has always been this dynamics of power associated with aesthetics. So it's not even a new invention. So aesthetics is always coupled with the principle of control, self-control, 
asceticism, et cetera, et cetera. And this indeed gets carried forward further as we move down time. And we cannot talk about aesthetics without also invoking the entire possibilities of power play within it, the entire, uh, the, the entire set of possibilities of how uh, it is continuously, uh, continuously connected to principles of regulation, principles of surveillance, principles of, principles of control, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So these two being part of the same project, at the end of the day, if aesthetics and ascesis are two sides of the same coin, then indeed, aesthetics is connected to politics. Aesthetics is connected to power play. Aesthetics is connected to some kind of control. But as I stated earlier also, while indeed odd getting deployed for propaganda, or, and propaganda both ways. I mean, the normative propaganda through which right from our childhood, we are ideologized into believing into communalist, sexist, uh, racist precepts. And we believe that black man is bad, women are bad or whatever, the Muslim is bad or whatever. So it can be used by the normative order of the day to make us to brainwash us and internalize uh, through artworks. And we can see it right around us, all kinds of artworks floating around, which try to ideologize us from the side of normativity or even from the resistive side, where resistant artworks try to question normativity, de-ideologize us to build up counter-hegemonic statements, where we build up resistant arguments. So on both sides, I'm clubbing both together as propaganda. So whether it is normative propaganda, or it is resistive propaganda, so art being a vehicle of propaganda, art being a vehicle of some kind of a political consciousness being roused in us and it being therefore deployed for a social transformation or for social formation or having a social purpose that is indeed from time immemorial because of this intrinsic connection between aesthetics and ascesis, it has always been part of the project. But the overwhelming question is, is it the only function of art or is it the only thing that aesthetics has to deal with? And wherein the overwhelming answer would be no, because that is just an incidental function of art. Just like artworks can have so many functions, so you can pick up a statue and you can hammer a nail with it on the wall. But it is not that the statue's primary function is to nail, is to hammer a nail in the wall. Or uh, you can pick up a very heavy book and use it as a paperweight. That doesn't mean that the use of the work of art, use of art in that work of art is that of it being used as a paperweight. So evidently, artworks can be put to use, use as paperweight or use as a political tool, use as propaganda. But that is not what exhausts that art object. Because the art object, on the contrary, is an art object precisely because it exceeds, it transgresses these very limited utility-driven uh, uh, use-oriented use applicabilities. And that is something that we must keep in mind. And Marx said a very wonderful thing. Uh, so Marx went on to say, if the value of a work of literature was to be limited only to its times and only to its immediate deployability, then why is it that even today, when the gunshot has been invented, the gun has been invented, so Marx was writing in the mid-19th century, why, why are we still so much in admiration of Achilles, the figure of Achilles who was shot in the heel with an arrow? So if art has to be limited only to its immediate contextual relevance, then Achilles' story or so many epics and all that would have lost their relevance by now because Radgai, Badgai type, that time is over. 
art, the uh, ultimate function of art is to be socially applicable. And that social applicability is over because that social time is over. Now arrows don't even exist. So now why should we appreciate anymore that Achilles was shot in the heel? Why should it uh, emote? Why should it kind of raise this emotion in us? The point that Marx makes is because artworks cannot be restricted to their context. Only that work qualifies as an art object or qualifies as an object of aesthetic, since we are not talking about art object only, which stands the test of time, which stands the test of limited utility, which stands the test of limited deployability. What is considered moral today may be considered immoral tomorrow, What is and vice versa. What is considered politically right today may be considered politically wrong tomorrow. So an artwork whose sole function or primary function is to contribute towards some moral uh, judgment or some kind of a political statement that is so limited, that will be so limited that it will not qualify as an object of art. An object of aesthetic pleasure is something that will stand transcontextually, this test of time, and will appeal to us even a hundred years from now, even a thousand years from now. Otherwise, it will be a newspaper review. It will be a pamphlet. It will be just something that was relevant at that point of time. I somewhat get it. But then there is also a political narrative, a propaganda. So maybe I'm I'm just like posing a counter argument here. Uh, not that I'm, I'm, I'm qualified to, but just to understand, right? Is that the Achilles heel could be just because we are romantic about it. And that's why it's getting carried forward uh, by some establishment and that's why it, it still appeals otherwise if nobody would have carried it uh it would have gone right so yeah true uh, so the, the achilles example is what marx provides in fact marx also provides exactly the kind of explanation that you offered now so maybe that is not the best of examples uh so the example notwithstanding so you're absolutely right that achilles heel stands the test of time because of that gatekeeping and mm. because of the colonial passover of what is high culture unto us and therefore achilles heel still, uh, still appeals to us but something else may not but uh, if, if we leave the uh, the example aside and uh, this point I've already made. So uh, let's say uh, one can as well as argue, and that argument needs to be made, that only that object might acquire transtemporality, which has that kind of investment of cultural capital, that kind of legitimation by the uh, gatekeepers, and which therefore accords certain objects of transtemporality. And we unquestioningly accept, therefore, that as a valid uh, aesthetic object. That argument is there. That argument I completely accept, and I fully agree with you. But there are so many other objects, too, which have never enjoyed uh, the kind of legitimacy that the gatekeepers of culture industry would have accorded it. And yet, a hundred years down the line, uh, let's say uh, we were talking about that lightning once again, or whatever it is. So there are indeed some objects which may not have had that kind of investment in it. And still in a different context, in a completely different context, it may appeal to us. And that may as well as qualify as a more legitimate object of aesthetics rather than one whose limited function is only political. And herein, I would like to add two more caveats. First of all, what I'm saying does not mean, I'm repeating here, it does not mean that art has no political function. Art indeed has a political function, right from its inception, aesthetics and ascesis being together, art is indeed political. But that is not its only function. That is not its primary function. That is the first point. And the second point is this view that art transgresses context and art transgresses the limitations of utility. This itself is a political statement. 
Because if you restrict art to a context, to a specific context, then you do not give art that extra edge which art has. The biggest political strength of art is that you cannot use it only as a screwdriver. You cannot use it only as a utilitarian tool for a particular regime. Art is so much in excess of that, that that is its primary strength. That is its primary political strength. Because art is so radical that it cannot be limited to any mere utility of a particular period. Its transgressive, subversive, radical political potential precisely lies in it transcending any context-specific utility, whether being deployed for moral purposes or political purposes. So the statement that I'm making is actually a more, I mean, it accords greater political radicality to art than a limited understanding of art for propaganda. Hmm. But does it now, again, in the recent context, if somebody has made an art which is purely contextual and, and possibly a propaganda kind of a tool, is it seen in a different light? or? Yeah, it will not be considered a valid object of art at all. Like, for instance, uh, Kashmir Files, which may be a purely propaganda film. So, is it? Is it? Does it qualify as an as an aesthetic object? Mm. I seriously doubt. So that is exact. That would be a good example. So let's say certain objects which take recourse to artistic media. So, of course, the medium is artistic because film is an artistic medium and you can write, let's say, equally virulent poems extolling some fundamentalist views. So the medium that you take recourse to is artistic. But the product that finally gets produced will not be a work of art, will not be a work, an object of aesthetic judgment. For the simple reason that it being so completely limited mm. to a particular utility-driven agenda that it will not be able to stand that test of it being able to transgress and exceed and subvert and undercut the normative order of the day and become truly uh, an aesthetic object of art. And herein, one is not talking about gatekeeping alone. There may be several, uh, let's say, voices that will be relevant even 100 years from now, 200 years from now, which may or may not enjoy the kind of uh, patronage of the state-driven uh, institutions that legitimize what is art and what is not. And what is gaining patronage from the state will probably be thrown into the dustbin of uh, artworks a couple of centuries from now. So that is the point to be noticed. So it's not just gatekeeping. It's also a question of time telling you what has been able to perform the primary function of aesthetics, which is to be able to make you transgress and exceed the limited yeah, order. Yeah, beautiful. In fact, I remember uh, there was one podcast where I heard where the poet, uh, there was like a poet on on as a guest and, and uh, the host asked that, is there something called as, how do you recognize a bad poetry? And, and he beautifully said that a, a good poetry test la, like uh, lasts for time and bad poetry is recognized in an instant. <laughs> so I, I just remembered that. Right. Uh, in fact, about... Yeah. And wherein one, wherein one must add that, and therefore, let's say certain works of art, I'm still calling them works of art, which were not considered legitimate, which were not included within the hallowed portals of art, like tribal art, aboriginal art, folklore, folk culture, which was brushed aside as ugly. I mean, these don't even qualify in our own metropolitan sense of what is art. 
they are more uh, qualified because they have stood the test of time yeah. and they are a thousand years old, many thousand years old, living traditions. And therefore, they probably, rather than the gate-kept, uh, legitimized movements, which uh, may be trending today and which may be out of fashion tomorrow, you can move on from minimalism to maximalism, from thisism to thatism. But look at how those forms of art that may be considered ugly, that may be considered belonging to lower traditions of taste, but they have withstood the test of time because they may be a thousand and more years old and therefore they may be more legitimate claimers to the, to the term of uh, being aesthetic objects. In fact, uh, I also wanted to just circle back on like one my observation, uh, and and it's loosely translated for the aesthetics and the eschesis part which you spoke about. I think we have our own vocabularies also. So in in sort of my world, there is bhog, and then there is yog, which kind of mirrors these two very closely. Okay. It's it's loosely coupled, but yeah, I see a similar. Okay. Uh, uh parallel there uh, certain, it, it, certain. yeah yeah and uh yeah i remember i interviewed rajat kapoor and he, sp- he spoke about like i had asked him why do we have art and he said i mean it, it changes things over time it doesn't change instantly that will be propaganda uh but it stands test of time and then it, it eventually changes so in this context uh if if we pick an aesthetic lens how do these interplay in our sort of day-to-day lives if you have anything to share on that front yeah no ultimately it's only in our day-to-day lives within our limited lifespan that we encounter objects that lead to aesthetic pleasure in us because we do not have an afterlife at our disposal (laughs) we don't have anything but this day so all the impacts that we've been talking about so far of certain objects, which may be beautiful, may not be beautiful, which may be artificial and created as art, or which may be natural, or which may be, uh, let's say, legitimate and qualified by certain industrial gatekeepers as art objects, or which may have uh, fallen on the wayside and been discredited as mass art, pop art, uh, tribal art, whatever it is, or whatever it is. I'm just using... uh, so. But we, on a day-to-day basis, encounter all these objects. And these objects continuously impact us. That impact is the object of study for aesthetics. So it's precisely on a day-to-day basis, every moment, our continuous encounters, our plurisensorial encounter with objects, not just objects of art, not just objects which we see visually, but uh, let's say uh, what we touch, what incident we brush through, what we are eating, what we are smelling, what we are hearing. So this continuous day-to-day plurisensorial brush with a whole plethora of objects is continuously leading to emotions in us. And those emotions are all subjects of aesthetics. They are all uh, topics that aesthetics has to study in terms of the affect that it generates to in us. But some of those affects may be limited. Some of those affects may be uh, very temporarily, let's say, constrained. Whereas some of those affects may move us in a way. And the creation and accumulation of those effects in us might make us over time a different person, a changed person, a person whose worldview is changed. Ultimately, I will die someday. 
But till as long as I live on a day-to-day basis, this continuous aesthetic encounter is what keeps on forming me, transforming me, metamorphosing me, and making me participate indeed in socio-cultural processes and also in processes of being uh, enlightened myself, being, uh, being uh, let's say, ennobled in terms of thoughts myself. And it is a day-to-day process. Continuously, mm. what we are doing is indeed uh, getting uh, emotions raised in us. Hmm. But are there any, I don't know, is there any thumb rule or any cheat sheet or any hack to to just enrich ourselves with these to, to shape up or to become as broad as possible in just the plurality that you spoke about? Yeah, there is no cheat sheet, but I guess if we are committed to a plurality, pluralism, diversity, rather than to some kind of an identitarian, I, me, myself, and uh, some kind of a, a my, uh, my little, let's say, what should we call it, my little enclave as being superior or something like that in terms of what culture, what cultural products we produce. If you're open to the other, if you're open to embracing the other, if I believe that I am not, I and my immediate community is not the end of this world, but there are so many communities, diverse communities with completely different belief systems, completely different aesthetic principles, and that, and become kind of appreciative of all of them. That may not be a cheat sheet, but an attitudinal openness might uh, might make us more open to this whole plural possibilities uh, of aesthetics. And uh, again, to repeat myself, the real uh, test of what is aesthetic lies in us being able to realize this plurality. Because this plurality makes us exceed and transgress and go beyond the self-same cocoon of the here and now, of I, me, my context, my immediate agenda. The moment I become embracing of the other, the moment I open myself to the other, I also serve that aesthetic cause, so to say, of being open to go beyond and transgress the here and now, the self-sameness. And that would be the test of what I said would qualify something as a valid aesthetic object, that it can push me beyond my immediate box and make me, as well as that aesthetic experience of mine, uh, stand the test of time and space. Got it. No, but the reason why I asked you this this question was mainly to to sort of get to a point where typically it's very difficult, right? I mean, when I got a Picasso or or uh, at home, like I mean, obviously a replica, or or when I started listening to Kumar Gandharva, it's it's kind of very difficult to first adapt, right? It's it's kind of because you are breaking your comfort zone, so academically or 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 practically or just exposing or understanding aesthetic as a concept does it help open your own gates has that been a function of aesthetic studies certainly and this leads us to two points that i've already made so one is about this whole idea of rasik so, uh, I mean, ultimately, it's not that rasa will be generated per se. You have to train yourself to become a rasik. I mean, uh, or train or otherwise. You could be a born rasik, who knows? Or maybe you are a rasik in one sector and 
quite a quite an accomplished rasik in that sector like some people may not appreciate music but maybe a very very rasik will bhojan rasik let's say <laughs> just to, so they have a very uh, very let's say receptive tongue so to say so you could have your own sectors but to go back to what i was saying so one point that i've already made is that somehow uh, rasikata or being able to appreciate something that may not be innate you may have to cultivate you could have it in you or you may have to cultivate the the capacities whereby you would be able to appreciate something and you would be able to generate that rasbodh in you from that object so yes one can be trained to be a rasik and that kind of a training and that kind of an inculcation would be possible that is the first point and the second also a point that i have made is that it's a today you do not appreciate something which however many people say is something that you ought to appreciate right mm-hmm. then there are two things two ways to go about it one you may question and criticism therefore critique also is a part of aesthetics you may question why is that in my opinion this is not at all an object that i feel aesthetically inclined towards or aesthetically moved by and yet institutions are telling me that this is indeed a valid uh, object of art so you can critically start questioning the legitimation process itself and not succumb to it so let's say if someone tells you repeatedly kumar gandharva is an institution and you ought to appreciate it and yet repeatedly upon hearing you say no i don't like this then you might critically start questioning what are those institutions that have made something that i definitely do not like what has made that into an institution so i can even critique it i can critique those institutions that has come to legitimize something and i can in fact go on to defend my own taste and where i may i may appreciate kumar shanu more than kumar gandhar each uh, each to his own kumar so to say <laughs> so you you pick your own kumar why not so there are these both these possibilities so and both of these so one can be either you opening yourself getting trained inculcating within you that rasikness whereby you will be able to appreciate what you ought to have appreciated but you somehow were not appreciating so you train yourself to appreciate it or conversely you stick to your guns and you precisely instead critique end up critiquing on the standpoint of your own aesthetic judgment why certain institutions may have granted a particular kind of legitimacy to an art object but i can critically expose that this is this is not something that i like and i can argue why i do not like this and why i believe that this only institutions like we are talking about the urinals once again it is evidently not an object of art and it's the ironic point that marcel duchamp was making and that is a critical point so that so suppose if someone says that you have to appreciate a urinal either you really uh, i mean generate that sense in you and start appreciating a urinal or conversely you take that critical route and both may require training so since you are talking about this cheat sheet and what can be taught in class maybe both of these can be taught in class so in mm. class one can teach a set of youngsters certain values certain which open their ears which open their eyes certain sensibilities can be aroused in them thereby they start appreciating a certain works of art which they were not appreciating earlier by generating that sense of rasa in them or conversely they can be taught criticality to precisely question from their own standpoint why they do not think that this particular object which institutions have said are objects of art but i don't think so and i can instead critically 
adopt a posture of exposing that machinations of institutional gatekeeping, which may have made them qualify as such. So both are teachable and both are indeed taught criticality as well as a certain kind of training into the generation of resickness in one. Yep, yep, yep. So helpful. Uh, I think this is a good uh, note to end. You you want to add anything? Otherwise, like I just need to absorb this many more times yeah. to come up with like, and and this is an ever-ending. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, yeah, we were yeah. talking about the test of time and all standing the test of time. So yeah. if we have to really do justice to something for which standing the test of time is so important, then yeah. we will not be able to do justice to ourselves. We will have to continue for eternity, for <laughs> years and millennia, this dialogue will go on. So yeah. instead, we have to stop somewhere. And this is a yeah. good note to stop on. And it was a pleasure talking to you. And uh, of course, uh, uh, if there is any further clarification that you may require, uh, you're most welcome to write to me or talk to me. Yes, no, thanks, thanks a lot uh, for the your time, and it was just wonderful having you on the show. Yeah, thank you so much. And that's it from today's Gan session. For show notes and more Gan, visit audiogan.com. And if you wish to connect with me, I am at audiogan moments on Instagram. Until then, take care.